Uh, yes, he has most of Ephesians memorized, and yes, I could listen to that all day long. Well, it was just over three years ago that we embarked on a journey um, to build, to add to this campus new paved, um, lighted parking, and, and to build a new worship center with large rooms for adult Sunday school classes. That's personally exciting to me. And to build some additional um, early childhood space. You remember that project was estimated to be just over um, $6 million. And so we committed uh, to give over the last um, three years, and we gave um, almost $2 million. That enabled us, very excited, uh, to say that we were able to complete the parking, the architectural plans, and to uh, erect the steel structure out front. Now, you, you will remember that we did not actually have the money for the steel, but on solid advice uh, from our builders that the cost of steel was rising substantially. We borrowed and built, and that was a, that was a wise move, but that uh, left us with the following cha challenges that I shared with you uh, about a month ago. First, uh, we have a $723,000 debt, which I want to remind you, I'm going to get to that. Uh, that was a month ago uh, that we were at $723,000, and that saved us um, over $70,000. Um, and then we also, that also left us a little over $4 million needed to complete this particular project. And so we as elders, as we talked and prayed about it, decided that we wanted to do a couple of things. You remember this. First, we wanted to break the remaining challenge up into manageable chunks. You may remember that I used Greg Adams' analogy of approaching a, a big hill um, on a marathon. Uh, to tackle that large imposing obstacle can seem a bit daunting. So to, to make it up that large hill, you break it down into manageable sections. Uh, if I can just make it to that, that first light post, th then the next one, th then the next one, uh, before you know it, you're at the top of the hill. Well, we've broken down that $4 million challenge into manageable chunks, starting with raising $1 million this year in 2012. Th this would allow us to pay down on that a month ago, debt of $723,000, and also that would allow us to start the process, the building process again, see some stuff moving out there, which would be very encouraging. The second thing that we said that we were going to do is that we were going to do a better job keeping all of us together informed, improve our communication, uh, to tell us where we are in the process. Today is the first of what I hope to be many updates that we will give you to keep us um, well-informed. We think that's important. Now, you'll remember in, in trying to reach that very first light post of a million dollars in 2012, we said that we were going to, to do a couple of things. We were going to add um, year-end giving from last month, because we have, typically have some year-end giving in the month of December. So we're going to take year-end giving in December uh, and, and then add that to the commitments for 2012. So, with all of that, here is where we are right now. As, as Paul mentioned, you might be interested to know that that construction loan um, it went from $723,000 down to where it is currently, just by making some payments, uh, we're down to under $700,000, $698,000. Second, last month, it, 
one month in December, you committed on those commitment cards uh, with your year-end gifts to give $48,000. That's great. But in actuality, you gave in cash $120,000 in one month. That is exciting. That, by the way, let me just add a, a, a little side note here. That does not include the fact that we made up our entire deficit in the general fund. In fact, beyond that, so that we were able to carry over a balance for some lean winter months. And it does not include the fact that we have perhaps the healthiest benevolence balance that we've ever had, which is also important as we enter the lean winter months. Third thing, we received from you an additional $180,000 in commitments for, the, for 2012. If you add all of that up, um, you gave or you committed to give uh, a total of $300,000 this year. That is very exciting. I, I want to suggest that we are well on our way to that first light pole. It, it's January 8th, and we have, we're almost one-third of the way uh, to our $1 million goal for this year. It's very, very encouraging. Now, that $300,000 comes from, from gifts and commitments, uh, are you ready, from 58 commitment cards, F 58 commitment cards. That's about 15% of our total giving units, 300,000 from 15% of people in our church who committed. That, that means we are one-third of the way there with only 15% of us responding. Now, I understand that there are a number of reasons um, for that. We've just come through the holiday um, season. You, you, you spent some money, and, and, and perhaps you've been gone, and, and, and maybe you've not turned in your commitment cards yet. Can I encourage you to, to do that today? They, they're going to be available in the back. Uh, you can fill one out. You've had a month to pray about it and think about it. I want to encourage you, strongly encourage you to fill that out and, and turn that in. You can leave it at the Welcome Center. You can give it to one of our um, elders, and we will add it to the commitments that we've already received. Now, it, it might be that you're asking, well, you know, why are the commitment cards? I'm giving. Why are the commitment cards important? Because based on those commitments, and, and frankly, your faithful um, uh, 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 faithfulness in giving toward that over the past three years enables us to plan for the upcoming year. We actually want to begin doing some construction out front, but that's going to require that we know what you're committing to give. So that's why the commitment cards um, are, are actually very important. Even if you're planning to give, let us know uh, what you're going to do. Now, it also might be that you feel that you're not able to commit at this time, and, and, and I understand that. Can I encourage all of us together, remembering that this is a family challenge, can I encourage all of us to give sacrificially what we can this year? Even if you don't feel like that you can commit, that, that's fine. If everybody gave something, remember, as I talked about this a month ago, if we even gave our coffee money, I believe that we could see some great things happen for this particular building um, this year. So, as I give this update, I want you to know that I am uh, I'm very thankful. We are very thankful. We're very, very encouraged, and I want you to be um, as well. But I have to ask you a question. You know, wh why are we doing this? Why are we doing this growing for God's glory thing anyway? Is it so that we can have, you know, this? Is, is, that, what this is, is that what this is about? As exciting as building a physical building is, I want you to remember that this is not the end goal. 
It is simply a means to an end. In fact, this morning, Paul tells us in our continuing study of the book of Ephesians that God is Himself constructing a building. He is building a place where He dwells by His Spirit. And I want to suggest that our erecting this physical building out front is part of, a, of the process of what God is doing but, but that is simply a means to an end of the spiritual building, the spiritual temple that God is erecting. You'll see what I mean. Read the text with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following say this. So then you, remember Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you Gentiles also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I want you to know that Ephesians 2 is an absolute masterpiece. Paul began this great chapter by telling us, reminding us what a horrible condition that we found ourselves in. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We walked according to the dictates of this evil world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to our own sinful, self-indulgent flesh, and as a result, we were deserving nothing but the righteous wrath of God. That's where this chapter began. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love toward us, even when we were dead, He made us alive in Christ. He redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. By His rich and lavish grace, we've been saved through faith, not as a result of any of our works, so that we would never be in a position to boast, so that all praise, as, as we just, that, that song we just learned, so that all praise would redound to the glory of God. Well, well then Paul, remember, turned his pen toward us, Gentiles in the flesh. He, he, he wanted us to always remember who we were, who we are, and how we got there. Remember who we were. We were separate from Christ. Now, that, remember what that means. That doesn't just mean we were unsaved. That means we were Gentiles. We weren't even smart enough to be looking for a Christ. We were separate from the idea of a Savior. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were without hope, and we were without God in the world. It was a, it was a terrible predicament. But that's who we were. But now in Christ, we who were far off, away away from hope, away from the true and living God, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, Paul is piling up undeserved blessing after undeserved blessing. How, How did we get from where we were to where we are? By the blood of Christ by the work of Jesus on His cross, and then God God accomplished some things in doing this. Jesus broke down the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. He brought that 
group that was formerly hostile together in one body, a, a completely new body called the church. In other words, we haven't become Jews and, and, and they haven't become Gentiles. We are a completely new body. And then he reconciled that new body to God through the cross. We who were warring, we who were at hostility with one another, have been brought together in peace. We who were at hostility with God have been reconciled to Him, such that we actually now have access to God in one spirit. This all becomes incredibly good news, but Paul's not finished. Remember, through this work, all things um, uh, in heaven and on earth are being summed up in Christ. It's the theme of the book of Ephesians. In the heavens, all things, including His enemies, have been placed under His feet. Christ is the head of the universe. And now all things on earth are being summed up in Christ through the church. Jews and Gentiles have been brought together. Warring factions are at peace. Those, that is, those who know Jesus. God is in the process of erecting a new building. He's erecting a new temple, one in which He lives by His Spirit. This, Paul tells us about in our text today. Now, you need to understand that Paul apparently did not have freshman English at Watauga High School because he is really, really bad at mixing metaphors. But when he does it, we get an incredibly rich picture of this new entity called the church. You see, there are three metaphors that just, he just goes, slides from one to the other in this text, and those three metaphors form our outline. It says, we are members of a new nation. We are also members of a new family, and we are members together of a new temple. Three metaphors. Look at them with me. We are members, he says, of a new nation. Now, follow his train of thinking. This is an answer to the conundrum that he gave us in verse 12. He had, he had told us that we were excluded from the commonwealth, that is the nation of Israel. We were not part of God's chosen people. He, now he even goes further, he reminds us we were strangers, we were aliens. Those words speak of, of living somewhere outside of our own country and outside of, of any privileges that, that, that being a citizen would entail. Think illegal aliens. We're living in a place that was, that, that, that is not our, that was not our home. Remember also in verse 12, he said, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. Uses the same word. That these covenants were not for us. Now all of a sudden, he, he gets to verse 19, he says, we are no longer strangers. We are no longer aliens. We are no longer a, um, outsiders. We have been brought near such that we belong to a new group. We've been brought near such that we have a new identity. We are fellow citizens, he says, with the saints. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. <laughs> we, we no longer have a passport. He's issued us new birth certificates. We are a new people. 
You see, having been brought near by the blood of the cross, he has created a completely new people, one new man, such that, again, we are fellow citizens with the saints. That word for citizen is the word um, polites, from which we get our word politics. And to that word, Paul added a, a, a prefix, a prefix to make it stronger. We're not just citizens. He could have used that word. He didn't. He added a prefix. We are fellow citizens. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. You weren't a people, but now you are a people for God's own possession. Now, when he says that you, we are fellow citizens, we have to ask the question, well, citizens of what? Are we then citizens of Israel? No. You have to understand that back then, citizenship, citizenship was very important. You held your citizenship very dearly, even proudly. I'm a citizen of this country, or you, there were even citizenships in, in particular cities, but, but, but you have to understand that at the top of the list was to be a citizen of Rome. Paul says, listen, more important than that, we are fellow citizens, we belong to, we have a citizenship in a new place. And he's already told us where that new place is. It's in a heavenly city. He's already told us that we are seated with him in heavenly places. He tells the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await the return of our Savior. Now, it's interesting. Peter uses these same words, strangers and aliens, uh, to remind us that this world is not our home. We're just passing through because our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul now says we are fellow citizens, new group, new people um, with the saints. Who are the saints? Well, Paul uses this word in this particular book to speak of all believers in Jesus everywhere at all time, both Jews and Gentiles. Saints we know are holy ones, made so by the blood of Jesus, having been brought near such that we now belong. Paul says, he's telling us, we have a, we have a homeland. We were wanderers, we were wayfarers, we were strangers, we were aliens, no longer, no longer outsiders, no longer second-class citizens. We belong in a way that we never belonged before. Now, if there is any place that Christians belong, it is with one another. If there is any place that Christians belong, it is in the church of Jesus Christ. This means that believers should never be made to feel like outsiders in, in the church. If, there's, if there is a place where you should feel at home, it ought to be with your fellow citizens seated in this room fellow citizens. Folks, we belong to one another, and, and we ought to be made to feel that way. In fact, Paul takes it a step further. Not only do we live in the same heavenly place as citizens, we belong to the same family. We are of God's household. 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember what Paul has been talking about. We Gentiles in the flesh were excluded. We were excluded from the commonwealth of of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants. We were enemies of the Jews. There was a barrier. There was a dividing wall that kept us out. Not only did we not get along, we didn't belong. And we hated each other as a result. There was hostility. We were without God. We were, in fact, God's enemies. Now, he says, we've been brought near. We've been brought together in one group, a new family, Jews and Gentiles, brothers and sisters in Christ, a family where nationality and privilege and race and gender and socioeconomic status do not matter because we are family. You see, all of those things don't matter in family. Now, I want you to notice, in this family, it is God's family. It is His household. God is the head of the household. Now, now, now think about that. We could have been made part of this household by, by, by being made slaves, but by being, being made servants. You know, He could have brought the Gentiles in and said, all right, you, you can be servants, serve the Jews. Could have done that. Don't know about you, but that would have been fine with me. I could have lived forever in the eternal city as a servant and been fine. I want you to think about it. It would have been better than the alternative. But that is not what God did. Chapter 1 that Dean just quoted to us, he reminds us he adopted us. He made us children. Verse 18, such that we have one access in one spirit to our Father. He's the head of our household. Not, not master, although he's certainly that too, but, but he is Father. We are brothers and sisters. He is Heavenly Father. This is amazing. In the Roman world, being a uh, being in a family meant privilege and protection. It meant identity and security. Well, b- based on the status and position of the head of the home. If you were in a, in a Roman city, your place in the city was determined by the head of the household. Your place in power and position and identity and security and all of that. Well, Paul here says God is the head of our household. God is our heavenly Father. I want to suggest that there is a fair amount of privilege and protection and identity and security there. But Paul's not done with mixing his metaphors. Not only are we fellow citizens, members of a new nation, not only are we part of God's household, members of one new family, we are thirdly part of a new building, members of a new temple elaborates on this in verses 20 to 22. Look at this with me again. Verse 20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We see four great things, four elements of this building 
that, that God is building. We see its foundation, we see its cornerstone, which is also part of the foundation, we see its building blocks, and we see its, it, well, well, we see its occupant, we see its resident. Paul starts where any building should start with the foundation. This building that God is erecting is built on the foundation, he says, of the apostles and prophets. Who are the apostle and prophets? Most agree that the word order here, apostles and prophets, and not prophets and apostles, suggests that Paul is speaking of New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. These are not, it's not built on the foundation of Old Testament prophecies or prophets that, that, that foretold Christ. That's not what it's built on. It's built on apostles and prophets in the early church who had these gifts. Now, since he's speaking of the foundation of the building, it's likely he's talking about those in the early church, this special beginning group who laid the foundation upon which the rest of the superstructure is being built. So likely, I'm going to suggest, most agree, that the, that the, the, the apostles are the original 12 plus Paul, and the prophets are those in the early church whose job it was to share revelation from God. So, so if that is true, and I, I believe strongly that it is, what was the responsibility of those early apostles and prophets? What was their job? Very simply, it was to communicate God's new covenant truth. For example, in Acts chapter 2, we read that the early church, early believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in, in, the, in the very next chapter, that the, the Lord willing, will start next week, verses 4 and 5 say this, um, by referring to this, that is this revelation that Paul had received about the mystery, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, like Old Testament prophets, that's what he means, other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed, same words, to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So, these New Testament Apostles and prophets communicated the mystery of Christ. We're going to talk about that more, more next week. But their job was to communicate the new covenant truth, what I could call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this teaching, by the way, they also wrote, which became our New Testament. So, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the foundation of this building uh, is built on the apostles and prophets specifically as it relates to their New Testament teaching. Yes, this, this building we're going to see is made up of people, apostles, prophets, Jesus, and us. But the foundation is built on people who communicated the Word of God. So the foundation is built on New Testament truth. It's by, it is uh, by the way, why we spend so much of our time on Sunday mornings in the New Testament. I want us as a church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We are building on the solid foundation that was laid by them. Well, in fact, it, this foundation is them. New Testament truth. So, these are the second building block of this temple, and that is the cornerstone. No doubt, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 28, which reads, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a tested stone, or more literally, a stone of testing, because all other stones are tested by the cornerstone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Most of you know that the cornerstone in a foundation is the central stone. It is, it is the stone from which, by which the others are laid. It's got to be the strongest stone. All other stones in the building get their orientation, direction, and purpose from the cornerstone. It determines the direction, strength of the building. And here Paul tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the important part. He provides the, the, uh, the building strength. All other stones, that's us. Even the other foundation stones, apostles and prophets, gain their orientation and direction and purpose and strength from Him. In fact, verses 21 and 22, notice how both those verses begin with that clause, in Him. That's intentional. In Christ, the building finds its purpose and direction. So leads to the third aspect of the building, that is the building blocks. In Christ and on Christ, this whole building is being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. You need to notice a couple of very important things about this. First, the building is being fitted together in Christ. You have to, you have to know that Paul actually makes up a new word here. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else uh, uh, in, in Greek literature. It's a completely new word. He, he, he takes a couple of words, puts them together, and the new word is fitted together. It didn't just, he didn't just use the word build. He used a much stronger word by making up a word. We are fitted together. It speaks of a close bond. It, it, it stresses mutual need. It's, it stresses corporate unity. We go together. I want to suggest, in fact, that if you are a block sitting outside the building, you're in the wrong place. We are fitted together as He wants us to be. In dissolve, so you can't dissolve us being built on Him. This, Paul is telling us, this, this reminds us that we need each other. I need you to fit in this building. You need me to fit. And, and, and notice, secondly, this building is still being built. It's growing. Every time a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, every time a person is saved, born again, they are added to this living, growing building. And it is growing into a holy temple in the Lord made holy by Christ. He's not talking really here about us growing in sanctification, growing in holiness. Rather, he's talking about the temple itself, this whole temple, as God takes unholy, dead in trespasses and sin people. He saves them, makes them holy, and then he takes the block and he adds them to the building he's building. That's what he means by it's growing, as he fits it together. And don't miss Paul's train of thought here. In his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus, he abolished the law. Remember, he said that, we saw that last week. He fulfilled the law perfectly and abolished it as a means of reaching God. He, in doing so, he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Um, that, that dividing wall 
which was the law that kept Jews and Gentiles separate. He broke that down, and in the process, he erected or he created a new body made up of Jews and, and Gentiles, but it's a completely new body. I want you to also remember, we didn't talk about this last week, but I want you to remember that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple, that's that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, Behind the curtain was where the Ark of the Covenant was, where only the high priest could go. And the moment that Jesus died, that, that veil, that big curtain, was torn into from top to bottom. This signified access. Every one of us, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, priests and non-priests, all have. Remember, you were kept in separate courts before that. We now have equal access to God. So, so in all of that, by his death, the Jerusalem structure has been obliterated. There is now no more division. There are no more dividing walls be between people. There are no more veils between God and people. There is, in fact, no more temple, at least a physical building. And it actually ceased to exist when Jesus died, not in 70 A.D. It ceased its function and a new building is being built, and, it is a building, and its building blocks are you and me. The temple is made up of living stones. This reminds us of 1 Peter chapter 2 again, where he says, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Coming to Jesus, this living stone which was rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also... Gentiles as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, and here's the Isaiah 28 passage, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. For those who disbelieve, you don't want to believe, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. That's Psalm 118. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, it's not what you were appointed to. You, you, were, you, you were a chosen race. You were appointed to to be a new race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, as, as He is building us into this new temple, growing us into a holy temple. Here's my question, why? Is He doing this to have a pretty building, you know, like us? Is that what He's doing? No, because buildings are not built for nothing. They are expected to do something. In fact, I want to suggest they are expected to have inhabitants. And who is the resident, the inhabitant of this holy temple, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit? God is in the process of building a temple, one in which He right now lives by His Spirit. You see, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do you not know that you are uh, a temple of God and that the Spirit of God right now dwells in you? 
Paul started this paragraph in verse 11 telling us, we Gentiles, we were outsiders, we were strangers, we were excluded, we were hopeless, we were helpless, we were without God. He ends the paragraph by saying, now you are part of God's holy temple. You are His dwelling place. This is incredibly good news. This brings us full circle then to my introduction. We are, why are we building a building? We are not erecting a building out front to just sit there, to, to just be a monument so that we can sit back, arms folded, and say, look what we've done. We are building a building to continue to be about the business of developing, of making and developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Followers who have been added to a holy temple. That building out front is not the end. It is a means to the end. It is a tool that is being used to build the real temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ, that we call Alliance Bible Fellowship. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is an incredibly rich passage. It reminds us, uh, this, this whole chapter reminds us who we were, what you did to rescue us, and then what you are doing with us. We're part of a new nation from every tribe and tongue and kindred and people. New, a, a new pe we weren't a people, now we are a people. We're, we're, we're part of a new family of which you are the head. You are the Father. And you are, are building a temple. We are, if we know Christ, we are already part. Living stones being built together, fitted together, a holy habitation, a holy dwelling of our great God. Help us to continue to be about the business of building the temple. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.